Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zora. Africa, amuka na unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisa Lohoko, and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, South Africa's President Jacob Zuma to visit Kenya, hurricane leaves widespread damage and human suffering in Haiti, and Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump face off in second presidential debate. In economics news, South Africa calls for increased cross-border trade, and in sports news, South Africa draws with China at the BRICS Under-17 tournament. First up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musam. The government of Ethiopia has declared a six-month state of emergency. The announcement follows months of anti-government protests by members of the two largest ethnic groups in the country, the Oromos and the Amharas. Violence between demonstrators and police has intensified after 55 people were killed last Sunday in a stampede at a religious festival. Human rights groups say hundreds have been killed and thousands detained since the protests started. An attack on a so-called refugee hosting area on the border between Mali and Niger has left 22 soldiers dead and led to widespread looting and the destruction of UN supplies. UN refugee agency UNHCR in the country says the soldiers were part of a Nigerian army contingent and three managed to escape. UNHCR says it was greatly shocked and saddened by the assault which was carried out by unknown assailants who arrived in pickup trucks. A Gabonese doctor who compiled a damning report on the post-electoral violence that rocked the country has been arrested. A civil society group says Salvi Hungo Humbod, a pediatrician and head of an NGO, was arrested at the end of last week. Violence erupted in Gabon after President Ali Bongo was declared the winner in the August 27th vote. Defeated presidential candidate Jinping filed a legal challenge, but the country's top court dismissed opposition claims of vote fraud and upheld Bongo's win. The killing of more than 140 people in the Yemeni capital Sanaa following airstrikes has been condemned by the UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. In a statement following the attack on the funeral ceremony on Saturday, Ban expressed his sincere condolences and sympathies to the families of the victims. Matthew Wells reports. The UN chief called for a prompt and impartial investigation of the airstrikes said to have been carried out by the Saudi-led coalition. The aerial bombing campaign began in March last year when the coalition began supporting government forces in their efforts to wrest control of Yemen back from Houthi rebels who currently control the capital Sana'a. Mr. Ban said that any deliberate attack against civilians was utterly unacceptable and called for those responsible to be brought to justice. According to news reports, coalition members said they would immediately investigate the case, along with experts from the United States. 
And finally, South Africa's Wits University Student Representative Council has threatened violent protests if management reopens the institution. The SRC says the situation is not conducive to teaching and that they will not go back down until the students' demands are met. The university has has an interdict against the students buying them from protesting, but students are not budging. The students are appealing to Vice-Chancellor Adam Habib to talk to them. That's SRC Secretary Fasia Hassan. This is an unconstitutional matter. It is in very much, in fact, every way it's illegal because there's no due process, there's no actual going through a trial or really hearing evidence. And we see it as a very clear attempt to silence those who challenge the status quo and a very clear attempt to take out students who have been leading the movement, to those who, who keep it going. So tomorrow we will be peaceful. No matter what happens, we will be peaceful. That's the news. Headlines at 8.30 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. Some communities in the south of Haiti have been totally destroyed as a result of the hurricane which swept over the Caribbean nation. Media reports put the number of dead due to Hurricane Matthew at up to 800 people. Around 1.2 million have been affected and some 350,000 are in need of immediate humanitarian assistance. Enzo Di Taranato, head of the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, Haiti Office, explains. There is a lot of suffering. Uh, there is uh, a lot of uh, hardship. Some of the communities have been almost totally destroyed by the uh, strength of the wind. Therefore, the shelters, the public infrastructure, schools, hospitals uh, have been affected. There has been significant damage to the electrical and the water provision system. So there is a great hardship that the affected communities are experiencing as a result of the passage of Hurricane Matthew. This is really bad news for Haiti, isn't it? It's one disaster after another. Certainly the hurricane has hit a country that was a phase of recovery from the earthquake of 2010 within a very fragile humanitarian governance and development context. So certainly it's not good news for Haiti. That complicates the response to other humanitarian priorities that existed before the passage of the Hurricane Matthew, including public health uh, epidemics, the migration flow, from the Dominican Republic that has brought to Haiti additional 200,000 people. We have also to remember that Haiti has been hit very strongly by El Nino last year with unprecedented drought. Certainly, this new event complicates the overall national context, but the United Nations and the international community remain supportive of the country 
and a significant response is being articulated as we speak in response to this new event. What's the priority of OCHA right now? The main priority is to finalize the assessment phase led by OCHA with the assistance of UNDAC that is assisting the Department for Civil Protection of the provisional government to finalize a detailed assessment of the needs. This is the first and utmost priority. The second one is to um, articulate the response system starting from the identification of sectorial needs and financial requirements. How much money is needed? We have no estimation as of now. In the next two days, there will be a clear estimation of the overall financial envelope that uh, will be needed. That was Enzo Di Taranato, head of the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, Haiti Office, speaking to you and Radio's Daniel Dickinson. Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta spokesperson Muna Manoa Esipiso says Kenya will seek South Africa's support for the position of the African Union Commission chairperson during South Africa's President Jacob Zuma's visit to the country this week. Esipiso says Kenyatta has already held talks with Zuma on the same issue before announcing the candidature of Amina Mohamed, Kenya's Foreign Affairs Cabinet Secretary. President Zuma is expected to arrive in Nairobi today for a three-day state visit to the East African nation. Sarah Kimani reports. The African Union Commission elections will be held in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia in January next year. Current chairperson South Africa's Dr. Nkosazana Lamini Zuma will not be seeking a second term. Kenya is fronting Dr. Amina Mohamed to succeed Dr. Lamini Zuma. The president reached out to President Zuma already about this candidature, seeking his support, and he will uh, return to that subject uh, in the meetings on Tuesday. Zuma will receive state honors on Tuesday, complete with a 21-gun salute when he meets President Kenyatta. The leaders will also attend joint Kenya-South Africa business talks. Immigration will top Kenya's agenda at the talks, as well as the removal of trade barriers between the two nations. On the trade front, President Kenyatta will specifically be seeking to mitigate the high levies Kenya's tea exports face in South Africa and also look at restrictions against other products, including but not limited to soda, ash, uh, and processed meat. Uh, May I just add that there's also discussion around the export of avocado, Kenyan avocado, to South Africa, which is also a matter that is under discussion at this point. That was our reporter, Sarah Kimani, in the King and Capital, Nairobi. It's 8.11 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. 
A South African constitutional court says it is not in the interest of justice to hear the so-called spy tapes case at this stage. A court has refused to hear an appeal lodged by the National Director of Public Prosecutions, NDPP, against the Pretoria High Court judgment. The High Court had found a decision by then-acting NDPP Mukote Dimche to withdraw corruption charges against South Africa's President Jacob Zuma to be irrational. Candace Nolan has the details. The so-called spy tapes are a series of telephone conversations between senior prosecutors related to the timing of charges against Jacob Zuma before he became president. The then acting national director of public prosecutions withdrew charges against Zuma, citing an abuse of process. At the time, he emphasized that while Zuma may have had a case to answer, the way the case was manipulated would have made it unfair to continue. The DA launched a court battle over that decision, and the High Court in Pretoria found the decision to be irrational. In June, a full bench of the High Court refused permission to appeal. The DA's James Self. The full bench of the Gauteng North High Court was unequivocal that there was no merit in his appeal when he tried to apply for leave to appeal. And I think they were very emphatic about the fact that to the extent there might have been miscarriages of justice or abuses of process, those uh, matters were properly ventilated in a trial court and not in a decision by the National Prosecuting Authority. So what this judgment does is opens up the, the very real prospect that Mr. Jacobs in the will indeed have the day in court that he has so earnestly asked for. The President then approached the Supreme Court of Appeal for permission to appeal. Meanwhile, the current National Director of Public Prosecutions, Sean Abrams, approached the Constitutional Court directly. It is this application that has been refused by the highest court in the land. In an order dated 28 September 2016, all the Constitutional Court judges say it's not in the interests of justice to hear the application at this stage. James Self again. The Constitutional Court is still awaiting the outcome of a identical application for leave to appeal that is before the Supreme Court of Appeal, lodged by President Zuma. If the SCA likewise refuses to hear the appeal, then I do think that the end of the road will have been reached, and that will mean that the 783 charges of fraud, corruption, money laundering will be reinstated, and his trial will go ahead. The DA says an end is in sight in the protracted spy tape saga. Yes, that is the end of the road. It is a judicial decision in the end. There is no political solution, and there should never, ever be a political solution to a matter of this nature, given the separation of powers in our Constitution. So if both the SCA and the Constitutional Court hold that there is no prospect of success in an appeal, then the next step would be for the National Prosecuting Authority to set a trial date for President Zuma to appear on the charges. Constitutional law expert Marinus Vickers agrees. And if the Constitutional Court, quite rightly I think, said that they can't hear it, then it's the end of the, uh, the judicial road. But as far as the president is concerned, well, he's uh, off the hook for the moment. The presidency was unavailable for comment at the time of broadcast. I'm Candace Nolan in Johannesburg. 
Let's go back in time to today in 2012. Schools shut their doors in Pakistanis across the country hold vigils for a 14-year-old old girl Malala Yousafzai who was shot by a Taliban gunman after daring to advocate education for girls and criticizing militant group. That was today in history in the year 2012. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma will have the last face-to-face meeting with outgoing public protector advocate Tulima Donsela today to wrap up an interview on the alleged stage capture. Madonsela is hoping to wrap up her investigation into the alleged involvement of the wealthy Gupta family in the appointment and dismissal of cabinet ministers and members of boards of state-owned enterprises. Seboe Ganeng has more. The probe of the arrested capture emanates from, amongst others, revelations by Deputy Finance Minister Mtribisi Jonas and former ANC MP Feiki Mentor that they were offered ministerial positions by the Gupta family. In an exclusive interview with the SABC, advocate Tulima Donsela says she's hoping to wrap up her investigation on allegations of state capture by the Gupta family this week. The condition for me to allow the matter to be postponed was that we set a deal around what's the timeline within which we can do this. So we agreed to Monday and I have no reason to doubt the integrity of the president. The executive occupies a position of trust and to maintain that ongoing trust and to avoid a trust deficit you want to investigate that and clean it up as fast as possible. So that's not rocket science. Meanwhile, Madonsela says her successor should be given time and space to execute her duties. She was responding to calls that advocate Busisiwam Kwebana prioritized the investigations into the alleged capture by the wealthy Gupta family. Advocate Mkwebana, who still to meet Madonsela for an official handover, was quoted in the media saying that she will focus on prioritizing the backlog of old cases instead of the high-profile alleged capture probe. Madonsela has appealed to politicians and the public not to pressurize Mkwebana to investigate matters they view as urgent and of public interest. To be fair, the new public protector will have to take her own path. To be fair to her, let her come to the office. We haven't had a briefing with her yet. And when she has heard our methodology and she's heard how we've been approaching the, the backlog and everything, she will then apply her mind and make her decision. And my predecessors never directed me in terms of what I needed to do. They allowed me the space to make my decisions as a grown-up. Madonsela has thanked the public and her staff for giving her courage and support to execute her official duties. She is credited for, amongst others, pushing for President Jacob Zuma to pay for non-security upgrades at his Nkanda private residence in northern KwaZulu-Natal. This is how Madonsela described her seven-year tenure at the helm of the Public Protector's Office. I would say it's been an epic journey, the kind of journey that took me to places I would have never known exists 
existed in terms of human despair because of maladministration. The Gogodlaminis that we found in all parts of this country and we restored their lives and we restored their dignity. The communities that were in despair that ended up banning things. And it's been a remarkable journey and I must say it has been a rewarding journey. Advocate Madoncella is considering pursuing academic career with Oxford and Harvard universities after her retirement. Tsepo Ikaneng in Pretoria. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwisi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundi. Informing the world about Africa. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.20 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Two competing UN Security Council resolutions on Aleppo, Syria have failed to pass after the first was vetoed by Russia and the second failed to receive the minimum number of votes required for passage. While both resolutions call for the implementation of a U.S.-Russia secession of hostilities agreement and for unhindered humanitarian access, starting with the besieged city of Aleppo, the French-drafted text demanded also an immediate end to the aerial bombardment and all military flights over the city, which Russia rejected. Russia's draft, which call for urgent action to separate moderate forces from terrorist elements in the city, only received four votes of support. Show in Bryce Peace reports. The draft resolution has not been adopted as permanent council members have voted against it. Despite 11 countries in favor and two abstentions, Venezuela supported Russia's no vote on the French draft. Then later, a second vote on the Russian draft, with only four countries in favor, a resounding defeat for Russia by failing to muster the minimum nine votes required for any resolution to pass. Ambassador Vitaly Cherkin accused France of not putting forward a single constructive idea on resolving the conflict in Syria. Today, we're participating in one of the strangest spectacles in the history of the Security Council. We have to vote on two draft resolutions of the Council, while we are all well aware that neither will be adopted. Given that the crisis in Syria is at a critical stage, when it's particularly important that there be a coordination of the political efforts of the international community, this waste of time is inadmissible. Appeals by French Foreign Minister Jean-Marc Arou for council action were essentially blocked by a singular vote. In 2011, an entire people peacefully rose up against oppression, and for five years, despite savage repression, this people is not giving up. This people, which has lived through trials and suffering, do not leave them with just one uh, choice, that is, between an executioner and the terrorism of ISIL and Nusra.
The UK and the USA were particularly scathing towards Russia. First, the UK's ambassador, Matthew Rycroft. Normally, I begin my statements in this council with the words, thank you, Mr. President. I cannot do that today. Because today, we have seen the fifth veto in five years on Syria from you, Mr. President. A veto that has once again stopped this council from creating the unity needed to give the people of Syria any hope for respite from their suffering. A veto that has once again denigrated the credibility and respect of the Security Council in the eyes of the world. A veto that is a cynical abuse of the privileges and responsibilities of permanent membership. And I simply cannot thank you for that. Deputy U.S. Ambassador David Pressman accused Russia of protecting President Bashar al-Assad. Today was time for the Council to act, to learn the lessons of the recent past. We failed to do that because one of us, perversely the President of the United Nations Security Council, is intent on allowing the killing to continue and indeed participating in carrying it out. It is grotesque. He also tried to address criticism of American hypocrisy in the Council. Russia, as always, will offer a different narrative. Russia has said that they are fighting terrorism. They will probably somehow blame the United States of America for the suffering in Aleppo. They will suggest that we are, not, are the ones not serious about the fight against terrorism. They will invoke past conflicts in distant lands, and they will lie. In short, they will do anything and everything to deny and deflect from the truth. The truth is that Russia is using counterterrorism as an excuse to help the Assad regime retake control of Aleppo by brutal force. While this was a day of high-stakes diplomatic drama in the Security Council, the stakes on the ground in Syria are much higher, and exchanges across the iconic horseshoe table, however deft or articulate, will do little to end the crisis. When Syria's ambassador took to the floor, Western diplomats staged a walkout. Such are the divisions that now best describe the inability of the international community to act in unison, even when humans are dying in what the UN Secretary-General called worse than a slaughterhouse. I'm Sherwin Bricebees in New York. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump clashed in a heated second U.S. presidential debate that began by delving into the remarks made by the Republican nominee on an audio videotape about groping women. Trump responded by accusing Clinton of smearing women who have accused her husband, former President Bill Clinton, of sexual abuse or harassment. Moderators had a tough time asking Trump on several occasions not to interrupt his opponent as they eventually touched on issues of governance, including how to address Islamophobia, refugees entering the country, and appointments to the Supreme Court, amongst others. Show and Bryce Peace reports from New York. Nominees did not repeat their smiles and handshakes seen at the top of the first debate, rather treating their Washington University-St. Louis, Missouri audience to polite nods. 
It was not long when co-moderator Anderson Cooper raised concerns about comments Trump made in a recently released video recording about touching women in a sexually explicit fashion. You brag that you have sexually assaulted women. Do you understand that? No, I didn't say that at all. I don't think you understood what was said. This was locker room talk. Uh, I'm not proud of it. I apologize to my family. I apologize to the American people. Certainly I'm not proud of it, but this is locker room talk. He tried to pivot to issues of foreign policy, particularly the fight against ISIS, saying he'd rather get on to much more important things. But he was pressed on his words as they relate to women. I have great respect for women. Nobody has more respect for women than I do. So for the record, said, you're saying you've never did that. I said things that, frankly, you, you hear these things, they're said. And I was embarrassed by it, but I have tremendous respect for women. Have you ever and done those women things? women have respect for me. And I will tell you, no, I have not. Clinton questioned Trump's fitness to serve and be commander-in-chief, pointing out that his comments caught on tape were just the latest in a long history of inflammatory and inappropriate statements that have in the past disrespected a U.S. federal judge of Mexican heritage, a Gold Star family, and others. What we all saw and heard on Friday was Donald talking about women, what he thinks about women, what he does to women, and he has said that the video doesn't represent who he is, but I think it's clear to anyone who heard it that it represents exactly who he is. Trump said that if he wins, he'd appoint a special prosecutor to investigate Clinton's use of a private server and emails deleted from that server. It's just awfully good that someone with the temperament of Donald Trump is not in charge of the law in our country. Because you'd be in jail. Secretary Clinton. Asked by an audience member if they could be a devoted president to all Americans, Clinton spoke of her time working to defend children and minorities during her years in public office. This was part of Trump's response. Absolutely. I mean, uh, she calls our people deplorable, a large group, and irredeemable. I will be a president for all of our people, and I'll be a president that will turn our inner cities around and will give strength to people and will give economics to people and will bring jobs back because NAFTA, signed by her husband, is perhaps the greatest disaster trade deal in the history of the world. They sparred over tax policy, Trump's release of his tax returns, Syria and the Affordable Care Act, only to receive this question at the end. Would either of you name one positive thing that you respect in one another? I think that's a, a very fair and important question. Look, I respect his children. His children are incredibly able and devoted, and I think that says a lot about Donald. I don't agree with nearly anything else he says or does, but I do respect that. And I think that is something uh, that as a mother and a grandmother is very important to me. Trump had the final word. I will say this about Hillary. She doesn't quit. She doesn't give up. I respect that. I tell it like it is. She's a fighter. I disagree with much of what she's fighting for. I do disagree with her judgment in many cases. But she does fight hard, and she doesn't quit, and she doesn't give up, and I consider that to be a very good trait. 
and in what will likely be billed fight night, the third and final presidential debate will be held on October 19th in Las Vegas. I'm Sherman Bricebees in New York. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Nigeria's security agency has seized 800,000 in cash found during raids targeting senior judges in corruption investigations. The government of Ethiopia has declared a six-month state of emergency following months of anti-government protests and South Africa's Wits University Student Representative Council has threatened violent protests if management reopens the institution. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.32 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Now, let's go back in time to today in 1984, where U.S. Jet Fighters Force and Egyptian airline carrying hijackers of cruise ship Achille Loro to land in Italy, where the hijackers were arrested. That was today in history in the year 1985. Africa Rise and Shine. Africa Zorza. Africa Approximately 1 in 10 people worldwide suffered from a mental disorder over the past year. That's according to the World Health Organization. Supporting those going through this ordeal is the goal of World Mental Health Day, observed annually today. The theme this year focuses on how first-line responders such as police officers, firefighters and humanitarian workers have been trained to provide psychological first aid during emergency situations. The approach has been used during the Ebola epidemic in West Africa, as well as in Syria, Greece and Nigeria. More from Dr. Mark van Ormeren, a public mental health advisor with WHO. Ordinary citizens, they can help in supporting each other's uh, mental health. For example, when people go through horrible events, this happens in, in war-affected countries, but also in communities of peace, people can provide each other support. For example, in, in a war situation, people may witness horrible things, but even in the community of peace, there may be car accidents. In every community of the world, there is assault, sometimes rape. So when people come across other people who are extremely distressed at something horrible, they can support each other. And the people who especially need to know how to give support members of emergency medical teams, police members, policemen, firefighters, the people in the community who respond when, when bad things happen. They need to know something called psychological first aid. And uh, psychological first aid, like medical first aid, is not enough on its own, but it's a, it's a good first step. And what's the impact yes. of uh, mental health issues today? Oh, the impact of mental health issues is, 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 is very big. I mean, the mental, mental disorders uh, around the world about one in ten people around the world have had a mental disorder in the last year, and that uh, affects many people's functioning. So it has a huge economic impact, uh, and it has also an impact. Uh, mental health can be 
uh, has an impact on poverty, has an impact on violence. And people, when people suffer from mental health problems, they're just not as well positioned as otherwise to work well. They're not as positioned as well as otherwise to to uh, do well in school. They uh, so it's 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 a development issue. Can we talk about uh, simple ways to handle a person with a mental health problem at home, at workplace as well? Mental health problems are very diverse. So there's many different types of mental health problems. So when when it's good to know what these problems are. So one thing to do is to seek help if uh, help is available. Uh, so uh, and even if there if, if one doesn't live near a place where mental health care is available, uh, one should be able, one should reach out to to uh, community members to to make sure the person has support. So everybody needs uh, social support, especially people with uh, mental health problems. Is there anything else we should know about mental health care? Well, one of the things that people can do is to start talking about mental health problems. So there, there's a lot of stigma against mental health by talking about the problems, to talking with people about their problems. That is already a very, very good first step. It's not enough. We need mental health care. We need interventions for people. But uh, uh, first step is, is to start talking about it so that people are not isolated. Now, in places where, where, where mental health care is available, and it should be available, we, we should help people with mental health problems to get an access to services and, so they, and then together with the with the person who provides the service provider to choose interventions that they want and will help them. That was Dr. Mark van Omeren, a public mental health advisor with the World Health Organization, speaking to UN Radio's Eluetero Giovanni. It's 8.37 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. A new application has been developed by a young entrepreneur in Ghana which allows patients in remote areas to see a doctor over their mobile phone. At present, there is less than one doctor for every 5,000 people in the West African country. But Reindorf Owusu hopes that his BISA app will help close the gap and he's enlisted the support of the International Labour Organization to provide information and expertise. The app connects patients to a doctor on any mobile device so they can seek potentially life-saving advice. Owusu speaks about the challenges Ghanaians face seeing a doctor the traditional way. People have to travel five, six hours to get to a hospital. So now we are connecting the public to doctors and we are also solving the problem of self-medicating rates because most people go to pharmacists because there are no regulations around uh, self-medicating so they buy any drug and they self-medicate and it's very dangerous and we are giving the public information that will keep them healthy prevent them from getting certain kinds of illnesses okay so that that was the problem you had to solve what did you come up with what is BISA and how does it work so BISA is a health application that is available on any mobile device whether you use an android an iphone an ios or even a low-end mobile phone you can use um, BISA to um, talk to our doctors ask them questions and get health information. And those doctors that are helping you out, are they doing this uh, a charity for free? Are they donating their time? Or where, do they, where do they come from? Yeah, they are volunteering. They believe in the work we are doing. They know something like this is very well needed in the public, so we have volunteer doctors. Occasionally we give them some perks like uh, free bandwidth. We also give them the platform to connect to their own fellow expertise. So. 
specifically on the issue of HIV and AIDS, how does BISA help people? Yeah, so BISA is um, giving you a chance to talk to an HIV specialist and we are going to be giving you locations on where to get testing. We are going to give you good reasons why you have to be tested. So BISA is is a tool that is um, giving the public even more fun information about HIV. We want to remove the whole... Uh, make uh, you know we are making it simple for people to have HIV and AIDS information without feeling stigmatized or anything. And the fact that it's not face to face, I imagine for some groups, and I'm thinking specifically young and women here, not it's not so easy for them to speak out. This helps them get accurate answers to their questions. Yes, it gives them a lot because for my society in Ghana, we are very conservative. So this too is empowering them to sit at the comfort of their home and ask questions without going through the pain of going to sit in front of a health expert and feel embarrassed and not talk about the real issues. We are giving them the chance to even do this anonymously. You don't need to give us your information. All you need to do is ask the question and I expect to get back to you. Uh, How do you collaborate with the ILO? So the International Labour Organization is going to bring more technical expertise in terms of content and information on labour rights. You know, people need to know their rights at the workplace and the ILO is going to be bringing that and as well HIV AIDS. You know, we've been getting the content, but uh, the content is sourced from different areas. But now we are going to get it from right technical experts from the International Labour Organization. And they are also going to help us further build the technology. So the tool is going to expand beyond medical and into other parts of people's lives? Yeah, so the name uh, for the tool is called BISA and it means ACTS. So even from the onset we knew it was going to expand. So working with the ILO is just a step in the right direction. That was Randolph Owusu, owner of the BISA application, speaking to UN Radio's Peter Foster. The status of transformation towards sex and gender equality in Africa has been in the spotlight at the annual Young Scientist Conference at the Academy of Science of South Africa in Johannesburg. Gender inequality is a global issue and remains a major barrier to development. Significant gaps between men's and women's opportunities still exist and pose a severe impediment to economic and social transformation. The conference brought together scientists and lawyers. More from Professor Himla Sudayal, Deputy Chair of the Academy of Science. Well, this year's theme is on human rights in keeping with the African Union theme of human rights and women issues. And so it is a multidisciplinary kind of meeting, bringing together, you know, the stalwarts of human rights like Judge Goldstone and Yasin Suka and others, together with young lawyers and scientists to kind of cross-pollinate the space between law and human rights issues and where science can work in conjunction with law and, and lawyers to come up with better issues to improve the quality of life of Africans throughout the continent. Africa's sex and gender equality has really been in the spotlight at this conference. Um, we know that there was a roundtable discussion on you know, the status of transformation towards um, sex and gender equality right. in the continent. Are you able to tell mm-hmm. us briefly about this? Yes, no, of course. I mean, the sex and, and, and gender equality and how we transform that space under which we as individuals interact with the issues of 
minority groups like the LGBTI groups, etc., has been one of the themes of this conference. And, and again, what we learn from all of this is that despite the fact that in our Bill of Rights and our Constitution, legally we ha- are, are very accepting of diversity and, and minorities and all groups of people, when it comes to the practice, it seems as if the human psyche has been strongly influenced by our cultural heritages and the views of society. So the panelists were trying to articulate the reality of the situation, not just in South Africa, but throughout the African continent, asking the the legal fraternity together with scientists to come up with resolutions of hunting or, or plotting a way forward for better engagement on this topic so that we have more acceptance of people who choose their own identities. Perhaps very important to have this issue of gender inequality when looking at the sort of science and technology industry because that's where it's very male-dominated. And, and you mentioned that we seem to fail our society to implement whatever is it that we would have had in policies. What is it that we can do differently? Um, and, and perhaps speaking to, to science, part of this, this conference is really to come up with those resolutions or recommendations. At this point, do, we have, do you have any idea of what we could be looking into moving forward? So, so, so first thing I want to say that within the Academy of Science, we view science in the broader context. That includes, includes, you know, uh, the natural sciences, humanities, social sciences, etc. And basically we view science as, as a way of using evidence-based approaches to generate knowledge. Now, the kind of arguments that come to meetings of this nature when we put science on the platform for discussion, it seems to focus primarily on pure sciences, engineering, and innovation issues. Now, I'm a biologist, and if you look in the biology environment, there are actually more women than men. Now, if you were to cross, do a cross-study across the various sub-disciplines within the wider sciences, then, of course, what seems to be most apparent is that the discrepancies exist between gender in, like, more biological sciences and engineering, maths, and areas where technology with respect to male dominating the latter and women being more in the biological sciences. That's the first major observation. The second one is that people at the higher levels are more male-dominated than women. And so the discussions that happened today that was kind of focusing on the women in science and the roles of where we should now be punting more women. That was Professor Himla Sudayal, Deputy Chair of the Academy of Science in South Africa, speaking to Komuzumo Pulane. Our economic update up next with Tabiso Luhoku. Thanks, Sabalungile.
The Institute of Chartered Accountants of Nigeria is set to address the current economic recession and lack of accountability in the nation's financial system via its 46th annual accountants conference. The conference is themed accountability now. Nigeria is scheduled to hold the meeting on Monday, October the 10th to Friday, October the 14th, 2016 in Abuja. Homo reports. In a statement, the institute said that President Muhammadu Buhari will declare the conference open, while the president of the International Federation of Accountants, Olivia Kirtley, will deliver the lead paper titled Accountability and Good Governance. The institute added the theme of the conference, which is the global accountability campaign of the IFAC titled Accountability Now. The institute said it would work with government to build a global coalition to bring together organizations that support the objective of improving transparency. Nigerian pension funds have been selling equities and shifting to local bonds despite cheap valuations as illiquid currency markets limit foreign participation in the stock market. Dave Udaunu who manages 724 million US dollars to Pension Alliance Limited said his fund had cut its exposure to Nigerian stocks to 10% this year. Nigeria, Africa's biggest economy, is facing its worst recession in 25 years, brought on by low oil prices. The Zambia National Farmers Union says it is eager to discuss pressing challenges in the agricultural sector with the newly appointed Minister Dora Celia. In a statement, ZenFU Acting President Richard Lisimba stated that the former farmers' body was seeking to meet Celia to address outstanding challenges currently affecting the sector, such as the need to increase the 2017 uh, national budgetary allocation to agriculture. Sisha Zuma reports. Zambia, like many other countries in the SADC region, is part of the Maputa Declaration that requires member countries to commit at least 10% of their annual budget to agriculture. But Zambia has over the years failed to meet the declaration, with the highest allocation being 8% of the national budget during Levi Mwanawasa's government. Among the issues ZNFU is eager to discuss with the Horn Celia is the need to increase budgetary allocation in the 2017 national budget to expedite the delayed FRA payments to small-scale farmers, FISP e-voucher rollout need to reduce high cost of production and prospect of resurrecting semi-irrigated maize production as buffer to local food security. Kenya is set to start exporting crude oil in June next year, but warned earnings will be little. The final investment decision of the early oil pilot scheme was given the nod on Thursday after Energy Secretary Charles Cutter and the oil company representatives briefed President Uhuru Kenyatta on the progress made at the two exploration blocks in Takana County. The U.S. dollar trades at 13.84 to the South African rand, 10.41 in Botswana, 9.90 in Zambia, 8.0 British pound, 8.9 euro, gold, $1.263, platinum, $9.68 an ounce, brand crude, $51, 48 cents a barrel. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
Thank you. Tabi saw sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. First up in our sports update this hour, it's cricket news where Kylie Abbott and Tabrez Shamsi shared seven wickets as South Africa cruised to a comprehensive six-wicket win over Australia in the fourth one-day international at St. George's Park in Port Elizabeth on Sunday. Swing bowler Abbott ended with four for 40, while left-arm wrist spinner Shamsi's net career best figures of three for 36 as Australia were shot out for 167 off just 36.4 overs. South Africa then reached 168 for 4 of 35.3 overs, thanks mainly to 69 of 87 balls from skipper Fav Duplessis as the protest took a 4-0 series lead with one match left to, to play. Michel Marsh tried his best to hold Australia's innings together with 50 of 72 balls while he shared in a 62-run 6th wicket stand with Matthew Wade. In rugby news, Springbok coach Alistair Kutier conceded that his team was outlast, outplayed and embarrassed by the All Blacks in their 57-15 defeat in the Castle Lager Rugby Championship played at Growth Point, Kings Park, in Durban at the weekend. Springbok captain Adrian Strauss also admitted that they were outlast by a far superior All Black side that has been sublime since winning the World Cup last year. Yeah, of course not. You know, this is not about my last test. This is about the Springboks, and coach said it now. You know, it's not not good enough. Good enough on the night. Um, credit to the All Blacks. I said it directly after the game as well. You know, they they definitely outlasted us, especially in the last 20 minutes, 20 odd minutes. Uh, you know, we fought quite hard to hang in there uh, for a, for the first half and a couple of minutes after that as well. But outlasted, outplayed by 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 the All Blacks, and I want to congratulate. Congratulate them as well, you know, with uh, with their season and, and the championship. With Saru's planned coaching in Daba, that's a conference coming up soon. Kutsia says it'll be the perfect opportunity to focus on the areas that are weaknesses in the game in South Africa. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely important. And if you look at uh, try to play distance kicking game, and then you feel contestable kicks coming back. And the aerial skills are not good enough. And they keep winning the position, possession. Or you start with a contestable kicking game. And you don't even win that back. Then surely we have a problem with our aerial skills. And it's not a springbok thing. It's a thing that you all will have to look at. And that's why the Indaba is important. To address those focus, area where we, focus areas where we feel we're lacking. In football news, the South African under-17 men's national team known as Amachimbos was held to a goalless draw by the determined China side in the BRICS under-17 football cup played on Sunday at the Bambolin Stadium in Goa in India. It was a must-win for China who had already lost two games while South Africa was playing their second match. Amachimbos enjoyed a lot of possession and created numerous chances which they failed to convert. South Africa now has four points after two games, while China is sitting on just one after three matches. Russia has six after two wins in two games, and Brazil registered a victory in one match they have played so far. Amajimbos next face Brazil on the 11th of October at 12.30 Central African time. China will take on host in the latter or the later match. 
And finally, with golf news, Tyrell Hatton has won the Alfred Dunhill Links Championship for his first European Tour victory. Nick Dyer reports. Hatton's third round 62 here at the old course set the platform and with a three strokes advantage into the final round he was never threatened. It was much to his annoyance that he dropped a shot at the 17th because everything had been so smooth and controlled despite admitting being nervous about the situation. Sterney and Fisher both shot good low scores but they couldn't dent Hatton's authority. Danny Willett teamed up with his caddy, Jonathan Smart, and won the Pro-Am element of the event. But the main honours go to a hugely impressive Hatton, who gets over the line after two second-place finishes this season and will rise to around 35 in the world ranking. That's your Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa, South Africa's President Jacob Zuma to visit Kenya. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump face off in second presidential debate. That wraps up Africa, rise and shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzura Magadza and... Komozomopulane, technical producer Murray Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Africa, or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Are taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Amanda Black with a song titled Amazulu. Tripping, I'm falling Tell me I'm nothing Don't care what